You ever notice how many lights there are on the dashboard of your car? A whole bunch of things. If you actually would, those of you who bother to read the instruction manual for the car, uh, there's an entire chapter given over to these lights. We're going to review a few of them now to see how good you are. You know, the good old, you recognize this one? Yeah, check engine light. Usually means some system in the engine or emission system shows a fault. It might be as minor as uh, uh, having to tighten your gas cap. If accompanied by a loud sound out of your exhaust, you have just been visited by the catalytic converter liberation front. Could mean a whole lot of things. Maybe you sometimes might see this one. Your traction and stability control. Your car's losing traction or there's a fault in the system. It, snakes are not following your vehicle if this one comes up. So, yeah, don't worry about that. This one. That's my, this one that's come up lately, newer one. Tire pressure monitoring system fault. You know, basically means you need to pull over somewhere safe and check your tires. Might be as minor as it got cold and you got to air them up. You may have picked up a nail. One of the scary ones. You ever have this one come up? It's about to get expensive. Yeah, Oil pressure warning light. Your engine has low oil pressure. Check it immediately. It also means if you have a lamp with a genie, start wishing for a new car. This is not one of the good ones to see. But yeah, you don't really need to know everything about how a car works in order to drive one, do you? You know, a lot of folks, you know, it might be a mystery under the hood. But it, it's going to help if you understand a few things. For example, your car needs fresh oil if it's going to function. Oil changes are cheaper than engine changes. You know, things like that. If you understand that, the car will run better. It will be easier on your pocketbook. Life just goes better if you know a few things, Right? Well, we know that God saves us in Christ. In order to be saved, you don't have to pass a test. You don't have to write an essay to be saved. We don't have to be master theologians for God to love us. We don't need to understand everything for Christ to redeem us. But if we can understand a little bit, if we can grasp just a touch of what God has done for us in Christ, it's going to be a great help to us. It's going to make it easier for us to follow him. We're going to be harder to fool, harder to get off track. This brings us to the book of Romans. In Romans, Paul gets theological. There's a reason why the book of Romans at most Bible colleges is a senior level course. We don't dump Romans on the freshmen. Freshmen get life of Christ. Sophomores, they get Acts. Juniors... Other epistle books. Seniors. Romans o'clock. Because it's heavy stuff. There's a lot going on here. And in Romans, Paul pulls back the curtain on salvation. He shows us what God was doing, how salvation works. Romans, interestingly, is one of the, it's a letter that Paul writes to a church, but not to a church where he's ever visited. Most of his letters are for churches and Christians where he planted churches or where he served churches. In Romans, it's a letter of introduction to the church in Rome. He says, I want to visit, visit you. He probably would have preferred visiting them in a different way than he actually did. It's always better not to be arrested if you can. 
But he was explaining what God has done for us to this church. And throughout this entire letter, the righteousness of God is put on display. Because we could start thinking, well, we're saved, but does that drag God down at all? You know, if God's so holy, how can he have anything to do with us sinners? And he shows us that our salvation is not an affront to God's righteousness. Instead, it's a manifestation of God's righteousness. And in saving us, a holy God, he doesn't go against his nature. He actually fulfills his nature by saving us. God is so righteous. God is so holy that he can even save sinners. And Paul sets the tone for this very early on in chapter 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in, it is the righteousness of, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He brings up God's righteousness. Right before spending a couple chapters condemning our unrighteousness. But then he goes right back to the topic of God again in chapter 3. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He opens this letter with a very simple truth. As he talks about God's righteousness, he points out, God is righteous, we are not. It's kind of the starting point for Christian theology. How can we come to Christ and be saved if we think that we start out as righteous? If we think that we have any place to stand? No, the the step one in Romans, he lays this foundation for three chapters. God is a righteous God. We are unrighteous people. Doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter what you've done. You have found a way to be unrighteous. Congratulations, aren't you proud? And that goes for every last one of us, every single human throughout time. You see, we think we're good. We all want to be good people, don't we? I mean, how many of us sit there and want to be bad people? Even villains in their own mind are good people. And sometimes we say, well, we just need to be kind. We need to be good people. You ever see those cars driving around that say, be kind or show kindness? I mean, without fail, it always seems to me that they put that on the bumper of their car so you have to be nice to them when they do something stupid. I mean, I see that and I just kind of get ready for them to cut over in traffic, not read a sign, do something dumb. Never fails. I've not been proven wrong yet. But I'll admit I'm a cynical sort. We want to pretend that we can be good people. And Paul says, fact is, you're not, punk. Not a one of us is that good. We we might say, well, I'm better than these people. And 
Well, that, you might as well say you're the cleanest person in the mud puddle. Okay, so you're not covered in mud. You, got, you can see some skin, but yeah, you still need a shower. But the fact is, we don't even understand what good is. We think we know what good is. You look at our culture, our culture will say this is good and this is bad. And you look at what they call good and you think, wow, this has seriously drifted out of calibration, hasn't it? Oh, boy. Humanity has no concept of good. We know what we think is good, but a lot of times what we think is good isn't that good. You remember when you were a kid where you always wanted to eat? Starts with a Mick. Ends with a Donald's. Why? We want the Happy Meal with the toy and, you know, the orange drink. And, you know, yeah, yeah, McDonald's. You grow up as an adult. How many of us are thinking, wow, I get to eat at McDonald's? No. No, no. You end up there. You don't go there. If you take two meals, one is a McDonald's cheeseburger and fries and another one is a great pot roast perfectly seasoned and cooked with potatoes and carrots and all of that with fresh baked bread, the kid's going to go for McDonald's. Why? Because kids are stupid. Yeah, We laugh about it. How many of us were smart when we were kids? Uh-uh, not a one of us. Yeah, you look back on your teenage years. I was having this talk with my neighbor just yesterday. We were talking about kids speeding through the neighborhood, teenagers just driving fast. Well, we were all dumb when we were teenagers. You're sitting there as a teenager, and you're like, I, wait a minute, why are you calling me dumb? Well, trust me, a few years, you look back, you can be like, preacher was telling the truth. We're all dumb when we're teenagers. Fact. Little kids pick McDonald's. Why? They don't know what's good. Eventually we learn. As humans, we're kind of stuck in that childish way of thinking. We don't know what's good. We know what's fun. But that often isn't good. Paul says not one of us is good. Our unrighteousness has placed us in need of salvation. And Paul systematically destroys the notion that we might be good enough by ourselves. He starts out with Gentiles. They didn't have the law. They had no relationship with God. He moves on to the Jews who had the law. They had that history with God. And he says, no matter who we are, every last one of us has sinned and has become unrighteous. All of us. You may have done it quick. You may have done it slow. But this is where every last one of us has gone. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short. All of us together are unrighteous. Not quite the togetherness we were wanting, was it? But meanwhile, God is perfectly righteous. He is holy. And once we have failed, we can't undo it. We stay fallen. We have fallen short of him one way or the other. We don't measure up. So we've got this problem. There's a gap between God's righteousness and our unrighteousness. And we can't bridge it. We can't even begin to fix it. Enter God himself. We can't do anything about it. But here comes God. God's righteousness comes to us through Christ. 
It does not come to us through the law. Is the law righteous? Paul would say, yes, it is righteous. But we cannot become righteous through that which we have already violated. You've broken the law. It it is no longer any help to you. If you have violated a rule, you cannot then point to that rule and say, well, this will make me good. No, it just defines what you have done wrong. Any debate about following the law as Christians is destroyed right here. Sometimes, you know, back then there was the big debate, should Christians follow the law? And today it's not as prominent, but it's still around. I've known some Christians who started talking about, well, maybe we should because Paul says the law is good. But he also says the law can't make us righteous. The law can't save. You know, we talk all the time about, well, we need to put the Ten Commandments in courtrooms and in you know, state legislatures. The problem is, if you put the Ten Commandments in a state legislature, all the politicians think you have just created a hostile work environment. That's all the stuff they want to do. But you know how many people have been saved by following the Ten Commandments? None of them. Not a one. Why? The Ten Commandments are law. Law defines sin. This is what is wrong. The law only contributes to our salvation in that it points us toward Jesus. It it tells of Him. It points out our need for Him. No, we don't find salvation in the law. We find salvation in Christ. In Him we find this redemption. In Jesus we gain that righteousness that we have lost. That we can't get back by ourselves. And He says we get it when we have faith in Jesus. And this shows God to be righteous. He is so righteous. God has so much righteousness. He does not betray that righteousness so that when the unrighteous become righteous. He found a way to do it. The unrighteous have faith in Jesus through whom they are made righteous. We got a problem. We're unrighteous. We can't make ourselves righteous. So how do the unrighteous serve a righteous God? A righteous God has a righteous son who offers himself that the righteousness of the son is then given to the unrighteous who believe. That's how righteous God is. You say, man, that's kind of rough stuff. Well, yeah, this, like I said, he's getting theological here. And by discussing what salvation is, he is showing us God's righteousness. But some then might argue, wait a minute, Paul, little problem. Remember those Jews, the ones who received the law? Weren't they God's people? Is God dumping them? Is there a problem here? Paul says no. He accounts for this when we get to chapters 9 and 10. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 
Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. This is done in a time when there's tension between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, and Paul has to address that gap. Why is it that the Jews are not automatically saved? And it comes down to how people seek salvation. Do we come to God by our own good deeds? Do we complete some divine checklist? Do we pile up enough good stuff so that God loves us? Or do we come to Him by faith? If we do it by doing good works, then we gain our own salvation. We are our own saviors. We don't need anybody else, but Paul says that's not how it works. We cannot pile up enough good deeds to fill that gap between our unrighteousness and God's righteousness. Because that doesn't change the past. No, he says salvation is gained by faith in Jesus. doesn't matter who you are. In Jesus, there is no room for us to be saved by our own efforts. We have to accept his death. Sometimes we say, you Christians, you're not that good. Oh, congratulations, you're arriving at step one of Christian theology. No, we are not that good. That's why we need Jesus. Congratulations. You're thinking it through. No, we get Christ's righteousness because we believe. God has done the work. We believe in it. And God says, you believe? You receive Christ's righteousness? Congratulations, you are saved. He said, this is the case for Jew, for Gentile. In this way, that difference between Jew and Gentile or any other difference, it falls away. We are saved the same way by the same Savior. There is not one way to be saved for the Jews, another for Gentiles. One way for men, another for women. One for white, one for black, one for yellow, and so on. All of those distinctions are erased in Jesus Christ. There is one way for all of us. It's a little too easy for us sometimes just to stay home and do nothing. You know, we Americans, we don't always travel outside our country much. If we do, we might go to vacation spots. But I tell you, there's a lot of value in going to other lands, to other places, just to visit with other Christians. Because we can get the idea that we, are, we middle American Christians are the default Christian in the world. Uh Uh-uh. Nope, we're the minority. The average Christian in the world is going to look like a uh, woman from Africa or maybe China, based on statistics. And that's always driven home to me every time I go somewhere else for the kingdom. was in Istanbul, meeting with church planners from Russia, Belarus, Ukraine. Yet again, I have it driven home to me. They are every bit as faithful, every bit as humble, every bit as hardworking, every bit as saved as any other Christian I met in America. Why? 
because we are saved the same way by the same Savior possessing the same Spirit of God within us. No, they don't speak the same language, most of them. I don't speak their language at all. I can't even read their alphabet. I know I've got to spin up a new course in Duolingo now. Oh, fine. I've been working on Spanish. Guess it's time for Russian. You know what? We're from different lands. And these lands, they may have disagreements with each other. We speak different languages that use different alphabets. We're used to eating different foods. But we are the same family. And we all realize that from day one. That the things that divide us are so much smaller than the one who unites us. And if you haven't experienced that, we're going to have to find a way for you to do it. Because that will change you. People don't come home from these trips the same. We learn God has followers from all peoples everywhere. He is a remnant from every people. You look in Revelation at the multitude gathered around the throne. It doesn't say, look at all these white folks from suburbia. No. It says there are people from every tribe and nation and tongue. All there because of the same Savior. Friends, God has not rejected his people. He has enlarged his people. How righteous is our God? He has opened up righteousness and salvation to all peoples everywhere through his son Jesus. He may have worked through the Jews, through the children of Abraham. He was not content content to have only them. He wanted everybody. And in his son Jesus, he's got us. But then... You get toward the end of Romans, and one thing you will notice in all, just about all of Paul's letters. He goes through a theological chunk, and then he gets down to the last few chapters, last few bits, and he starts getting practical. Kind of the practical advice bit, where we have seen God's righteousness. He has defended it, he has upheld it, he has revealed it, but now he applies it. God is righteous. He saved us by faith in Jesus Christ, but there's something for us to do with it. In the Bible, we are never given knowledge just for us to know. Every time we are told something, it is because there is an implication. There is something for us to then do with it. You see this at home. Any of you as a teenager ever have your parents, maybe your mom come up to you, trash can's getting pretty full. Is she just making an observation to enlighten you and hear herself speak? (laughs) Yeah, boy, if you thought that, you got a different thought real quick, didn't you? There's a message. Same way with the Bible. We, We see something, we get new information. That means there's something for us to do with it. It doesn't end with God just saving us by faith in Christ. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And these two verses sum up this practical segment. How we have been needs to change. Our unrighteous ways are not acceptable in one who belongs to a righteous God. We can say, oh, God, Jesus loves me. He accepts me for who I am. Oh, Jesus has loved you for who you are. You've been saved, but now it's time for you to be like him. How you are needs to give way to becoming like Christ. Yes, you will have your uniqueness, you will have your own personality, but each and every one of us has elements to ourselves that we have to admit are not ideal. There are places in our personality where we need to change. Well, that's how I am, that's just how I've always been, yes. And now it's time for us to change and to be different. Paul says, now we are the sacrifice. Christ was the sacrifice for our sin, but in the Old Testament, there's way more offerings than just sin offerings. All kinds of other offerings for other purposes. He says, Christ is our sin offering. Now we become living sacrifices. You know what we don't have in here? There is no altar of burnt offering in this church. Closest we have is the gas grill outside in the shed, and done properly, it does not become that. We don't burn things up on it, ideally. No. Here in Christ, we're done offering things in fire. Now we offer up our lives. We are living sacrifices. Honoring him not with our deaths and the spilling of our blood, but with every breath we take. And as one person said, I don't even know who said it, this has just been repeated probably for generations, the problem with a living sacrifice is that it wants to keep crawling off the altar. No, we got to force ourselves to stay there. Because we honor him. Not by the shedding of blood, but through transformation. Leaving behind our sinful ways in a fallen world, becoming more like our righteous Father in heaven. The way we were, we recognize that's not how we are to be. And here we learn that while our salvation comes before our good works, before our transformed lives, we still do good works. Friends, the good things we do are a result of our salvation, not the cause. Oh, we do good works not because they save us. We do good works because God has saved us. The good works are still in there. They just come after. We don't do good works trying to earn a place in heaven. We know that is assured thanks to the blood of Christ. His death and resurrection has shown us and given us that promise. May God be praised forever and ever. Amen. But now that that's done, it's time to get to work. So we follow the example of Jesus. We love each other. We serve each other. We belong to Christ. We are saved in Christ. And we are each working on being like Christ. Friends, in Romans, we learn that we have a righteous God. Through faith in His Son, we find ourselves made righteous. Righteous. 
Only in Jesus are we saved. Then we become like him. See, sometimes we Christians, we got to be careful with new believers. They come out of the baptistry, and it's really tempting to look at that as a finish line. No, that's the starting line. There's no checkered flag here. That's the starting blocks. Because that's where we start out. And sometimes we can be a little harsh on new Christians because they don't come out of that water perfect. I guarantee you, there's nothing special about that water. Comes out of the same tap that fills the, the water fountains, the sinks, and every other fixture here in Christview Church. No, there's nothing magical up here. All you do is pledge yourself to Christ, uniting yourself with Him. You symbolize Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. You come forth living, living for Him. And now your work begins. All those temptations you had are still going to be there. And we mature Christians, we got to recognize they're not going to be perfect. The new Christians, they're going to take a little bit of work. Because let's be honest, I, I look around here, I see a lot of folks who've been following Jesus for decades. 20 years, 30 years, 40, 50, maybe some 60 years plus Christians in here. How many of you who've been following Jesus for decades are now perfect? Nobody's going for that one, huh? Good. Not a one of us. Not a one of us. We're all still working on it. So yeah, we need to cut each other grace. We need to cut the new, new believers a lot of grace. Because we're all working on the same thing. The transformation in lifestyle comes after the transformation in destiny. In Jesus we are saved, and then we become like him. And this has been God's plan for us to be saved in this way, for all people everywhere to become his people through his son. Yeah, Romans is a heavy book, but it builds to this, to be transformed by life in Christ. He saves us. He declares us righteous when we believe. And then he shapes and molds us to become like him. We have faith. We gain righteousness and salvation. We live by faith. We become like Him. Bit by bit, God's Spirit works in us and guides us. And all this is through Christ and only through Christ. The fact that we have Jesus shows us how great our God truly is. Our righteous God has used His righteous Son to make unrighteous sinners His righteous children. Stand with me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for what you've done for us in Jesus. We praise you for your mercy and your grace and your righteousness and your wisdom. Lord, draw us to your Son in faith that we may believe and be saved. That we may obey and be transformed. That we may eagerly anticipate the promises that you have for us. We praise you in the name of Jesus.